Coming up this hour, The Bear on KCRW Berlin. It's the show that gives you a front row seat to an evening of great storytelling recorded live in Berlin. On today's program, stories of discovery. In honor of Berlin Science Week, scientists leave the lab and enter the limelight to share their personal triumphs and tribulations. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Each month, The Bear hosts an event where people are invited to share stories centered around a certain theme. And each month, we bring you some of our favorite stories from the evening. Now, usually, The Bear live storytelling events are held monthly, and the stage is open to anyone who wants to share a story. But this month was a little different. The live show on November 1st was presented in partnership with the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in honor of Berlin Science Week. Here are some opening words from the Bears creator, Diane Nyman. Scientist, I hope I don't offend you, but there's a lot of cliches about scientists that um, they're hard to understand. They spend their days with lab coats in these somber laboratories. Uh, they never fail, fall in love, or, I don't know, make mistakes. So on tonight's show, that idea that Diane describes is turned on its head. The true personal stories you'll hear tonight are from four scientists who don't fit that cliché. They'll take us to the heart of discoveries they've made, both in and outside of the lab. You'll also hear music from cellist Eli Chester. The first story on tonight's show is titled A Moment of Clarity in the Fog of Biology. It comes from Emmanuel Weiler. We heard the lab coat in the introduction from Diane in the beginning. And I think this is often how science is depicted. Like people like scientists like us walking in bright, shiny, white lab coats through like Bauhaus-style buildings, clear edges, large windows let in the bright line, bright light to shine in all the corners and to really show all these ornaments and these aesthetics. And we do experiments and we distinguish true from false. We discover truth and enlightenment. And we say, this is how it works in biology. Of course, it's not like that. Biology research, this is more like you can imagine myself as a scientist wandering through a foggy, obscure landscape. Features emerge and disappear. What looked rock solid from the distance is a fleeting spectrum, spectra upon approach. Solid ground is distinguished from swamp by like doing miniature step after step. And if we see something, an uh, entity, a process, we look at it from all sides, we describe it, we feel it, we touch it until we are sufficiently certain that it's real and not just a dream. Too often, we end in dead ends. So, around this time in 2013, I was up to discovering, looking on one of these foggy things, the movement of the ribosomes. Let me briefly introduce these little thingies, these tiny thingies, which are in all cells of our bodies. You can imagine my genome, your genome, 
like a huge library with thousands, tens of thousands of books. And like servant little spirits go in and out and they grab the books and the books contain the building plans for the proteins that you are needing at a specific moment. So for example, today at lunch, I was at an all-you-can-eat buffet. So I needed a lot of proteins that could digest all that food. Um, they're working hard to digest it, and in fact, I think they're still working on it. Or for example, uh, after that show, I will desperately need a drink, and so there will be alcohol in it. I will need the protein alcohol dehydrogenase to get rid of the alcohol. So the ribosome is the reader of the book. It translates the book. It reads the text and makes a protein. And when the ribosome is reading that book, that text, the question is essentially, is it sliding over the text or is it jumping, jumping from word to the next word to the next word? This is what I wanted to see. So you might think, yeah, why doesn't it just, you know, like look at these whatever ribosome stuff? These ribosomes, they're so tiny Imagine flying in a plane over Berlin, 10 kilometers, six miles, 10 kilometers. Um, and you would like to see the ants on the ground, like here on the courtyard of Pfefferberg, like the ants running around. And this is essentially what I wanted to do from that distance. I want to see, are the ants running around, walking, or are they jumping? And of course, you cannot see ants from a plane. And you cannot see movements of ribosome just by looking at cells. So I needed some like serious science gourmet shit to get this working. So I adopted this method to observe the movements of ribosome in these foggy days of fall 2013 in Berlin. And it's a tedious experiment. It takes many days, a bit more than a week. I would go into the lab in the morning, I would transfer a minute amount of liquids, microliters, one millionth of a liter from one test tube to the other. I would put the test tube in centrifuges, which can break. I would take them out of the centrifuge, I would be nervous, they would fall down, everything would be lost. I would have started from the beginning. I would work with like glibbery gels, which can break and fail in an awful lot of ways. And during all this process, I would only have like very faint indications whether I'm still on the right path or whether I'm just walking in the dead end of a swamp. And at the end of this many, many days of working, I would give a tiny volume to the so-called sequencing facility, as we call it, a small volume, 100,000 times less than the beer I so desperately needed after this work. And so what would come back from the sequencing facility or the so-called sequencing reads, and this is like millions and millions of lines in a text file, every line about 30 to 40 letters long, and I would have to look at them. And you can imagine me like doing this experiment. It's like blazing the way through the underbrush of a very thick forest you know, I would be fighting against the leaves which hit me in my face. I would, I would stumble upon roots and trunks. There would be hole on the path which I have to go around. I have to be quick and swiftly, but also very carefully at the same time, not to lose these millions of a litter on my way and having to go back and start all over again. So I'm 
struggling through this underbrush. I'm, I'm sweating, I'm dirty, I'm really out of breath. But then suddenly, I step out into this clearing of the forest. The fog disappears. The sun is shining. I feel a mild breeze on my face, glittering fresh dew on the grass. And there I see the ribosomes jumping from one word to the next, to the next. Of course, unfortunately, the it's not like clearings on the forest or elves or gnomes or so. It's a computer screen. But on this computer screen, I see a very clear pattern, like the bars of a fence, very regular interspersed, one, then nothing, then one, then nothing, then one, then nothing. And of course, it's just lines on the computer. But at that moment of Eureka, I see through the computer screen, I see into these tiny cells of our bodies, into these even smallest ribosomes, and I see them jumping, visualized by this biological, by this research method, how they jump from one word to the next word, to the next word. This was a rare moment of clarity in research, and I think as research and I as a scientist, we strive for these moments of clarity and we really hope them, and this is what drives my work. Thank you. That was Emmanuel Weiler. This evening's show is all about moments of discovery. We'll hear next from Doris Wu. Her story is called, Is There Poop in My Hair? Okay, so... I was sitting at the top of the canopy. I was 45 meters up. I was surveying all the trees in the rainforest in West Africa, and I felt totally serene. You know, I was there to do my PhD research. I was up in the trees. The sun was setting. It was beautiful. And I had worked my whole life towards this moment. You know, when I was a kid, I just wanted to go to Africa and study animals. I was, like, obsessed with animals. On my way home to school, I would rescue birds that I found in the road or lizards, sometimes my neighbor's cat. So maybe that was more kidnapping than rescuing, but I was obsessed. I was obsessed with animals. So I studied biology in college, and afterwards I had the opportunity to go to South Africa and work on a PhD project. And I just fell in love with fieldwork. I fell in love with the forest, with the animals, how peaceful it is. And then I got to go to Congo and work with the bonobos, and that was amazing. It, but it was all very surface-level interest. You know, I, I was still just captivated by animals, but I didn't have a question about them or anything. I just liked being around them. So at this time, my boss was like, you should consider a master's. And I was like, okay, you know, why not? <laughs> and I ended up going to Nigeria and studying baboons. And this was just amazing. You know, the baboons are playing, they're fighting with each other, they're pushing each other in the water. They're just being ridiculous. And I just thought, this is fascinating. <laughs> they're like little children, you know, they, they just want something, they take it. And I was just wondering, what are these animals thinking? How, how are they behaving? Why are they behaving like this? So then I had the opportunity to come to Germany to do my absolute dream PhD. I quit my job, I sold my car, I left all my friends and family behind, and I was like, all right, going to Germany, gonna go to West Africa, look at chimpanzees. And I was looking at malaria. So malaria, they also have this disease, and it's spread by mosquitoes. So the mosquito bites you at night when you're sleeping and it gives you the disease. 
We protect ourselves from malaria by sleeping in bed nets. But the chimpanzees, they don't have bed nets, and they sleep in the trees at night. And every night, they climb in the trees, they grab all the leaves and the branches, and they make a nest in the, in the tree. And every night, they move the nest, they make a new nest in another tree. It's a lot of work, it's very tiring being a chimp. And so <laughs> I had this brilliant idea <laughs> What if I captured the mosquitoes in the trees that are biting these chimpanzees? I want to know if they choose their nesting site based on the abundance of mosquitoes. So maybe they sleep in areas where there's less mosquitoes, there's less malaria parasites. So I decided I'm going to go to West Africa, climb into trees, climb into chimpanzee nests, and capture mosquitoes with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so I'm up in the tree with my vacuum cleaner, vacuuming all these trees, these chimpanzee nests. You know, I'm also doing this at night in the dark because that's when the mosquitoes are the most active. So vacuuming mosquitoes in the dark in West Africa, left all my friends and family behind. Brilliant, you know. But it's sunset, it's beautiful, it's serene. I'm doing my dream PhD. There's just one tiny little problem. I'm covered in chimpanzee poop. Like, it's in my hair on my shoulders, it's really disgusting. I can't shower for another 16 hours because I just started my day, or night, because it's nighttime. So before this, I was on the ground, and the chimpanzees were coming through, and I was watching them, and I felt like Jane Goodall, you know, with my little notepad. And I was like, oh, this is like perfect. You know, they're like playing here, there's some arguing. And then I hear this screaming above me, and I look up, and there's two chimpanzees, and they're fighting in the tree. And one of them is just shaking the branch. And the other one's holding on, just like, ah! Like, freaking out. That's not a very good chimpanzee noise, sorry. <laughs> but it's just, like, freaking out. And I, like, look up. And then I see some brown stuff coming towards me. And I was just like, oh. oh. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. But I swore. And I went like this. And it just splattered, like, all over me. Like, it's just warm, hot. It doesn't smell too bad, because they eat a lot of fruit. <laughs> so it's a bit sweet. But you know, I'm just like covered, and I'm just like stunned, like, oh my god, this is disgusting. So I like peel off my shirt, I have some wet wipes, I'm like wiping myself down. And I'm like, all right, well, okay, I better start work. And I like climb up into the tree, and my field assistant, he's waiting up there with me with the, with the vacuum cleaner. And he's like, oof. You look, you look a bit rough. <laughs> and I was like, yes, thank you for noticing. I've had a hard day. It's just beginning. <laughs> and he's like, and I'm just like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm vacuuming trees for mosquitoes, and I'm covered in chimpanzee <laughs> Great. But this is field work, you know? Field work, <laughs> it's hard, it's not glamorous. It's not, you know, what you see, like, Jane Gall doing with, like, looking clean and poised. And, you know, it's dirty. It's a lot of gritty work. It's a lot of hard hours. It's what we call, in America, type 2 fun. So <laughs> there's three types of fun. I don't know if you know this. Type 1 fun is fun while you're doing it. So it's very clear. Type 2 fun is fun later. Like, you think about it, and you're like, that was super hard and difficult and I didn't like it, but afterwards you feel such a sense of like reward and you know, you're like, oh, okay, I can do things and that was really cool and let's do that again. And then type three fun is just not fun. It's like 
not fun during, not fun after. You're just like, why did I do that? Let's, n let's yeah, never do that again. Let's not even talk about it. Let's just move on. And even though <laughs> I was covered in chimpanzee poop, it was still type two fun. I was still collecting data for my PhD. I was still doing what I wanted to do, which was working with animals in West Africa. And I was still having a really good time. So I get out of the field and I go to the lab and I start analyzing all my samples. There's no malaria in the chimpanzees or in the mosquitoes. So the disease I went to go study is not existing in this ecosystem. So I just spent months collecting things, being covered in poop, Nothing, no malaria. So I'm feeling pretty like disheartened at this point. It's now the PhD is kind of veering from type one, two fun into type three fun. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm even doing anymore. I quit my job. I'm here, you know, away from all my friends and family. I have no really good data and it's really difficult. And I was thinking about quitting for a while, but then my, my advisor, you know, they got together and they're like, okay, we can, we can make something out of this data. We can still make it work. And, you know, he said to me, like, we're all just ants carrying our little piece of information towards this bigger goal. And, you know, each part is really important. And that's actually what science is really about. You know, it's not about one person accomplishing some grand thing. We're all here working together towards a greater goal, and that's, that's why I really love science, and that's why even though you know, you're covered in poop, you have no data, but you're still working towards something. And that's, yeah, that's what I just really love. Thanks. That was Doris Wu. We're taking a short break. When we come back, our final two stories on the theme of discovery. Glass. Every year near Thanksgiving, This American Life brings you our annual program about poultry. You ready for bird? Chickens, ducks, turkeys. That's the day we had before the night 3,000 turkeys died. Real and fictional. Chicken! He's everywhere! He's everywhere! This week, the tradition continues. Why would you do that? Catch This American Life every Sunday at 5 p.m. on KCRW Berlin. A prestigious politician faces the revelation of a deeply held secret. I know the real origin of your wealth and your career, and now you have got to pay for it. An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde, starring Alfred Molina, Jacqueline Bissett, Miriam Margulies, and Martin Jarvis. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Catch L.A. Theatre Works, Sunday nights at 7 on KCRW Berlin. The holidays are fast approaching. Take a moment now to stop and support your favorite public radio programs on 104.1 FM by visiting the KCRW Berlin store at kcrwberlin.com store. By purchasing a KCRW Berlin logo item for you or your loved ones, you're not only supporting your favorite programs, you're helping in raising awareness for your station. Just go to kcrwberlin.com store. And happy holidays. 
Welcome back to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. On the last Saturday of every month, we bring you stories recorded live at Bear Storytelling events here in Berlin. These stories were recorded during Berlin's Science Week. The theme of the evening was Eureka, and scientists from different backgrounds came up to share discoveries, both professional and personal. The next story comes from Annie Voigt. Her story is called Riding Solo. Hi guys, thanks for still being here. So, as a scientist, I've made quite a couple of discoveries in my life. I have taught fruit flies how to navigate a maze. I have discovered a way to figure out if you have diabetes before you have diabetes. And I learned that if you don't tell students not to eat the samples, they will eat the samples. <laughs> but the most profound discovery I've ever made has nothing to do with science. It's actually a really easy one. I can fix a flat bike tire all on my own, anywhere. All right. None of you, except for a few, well, a few people here, have not heard me say the following yet. Did you know I took a bike ride from Berlin to the North Cup all on my own? My friends have grown, grown really tired of me saying this. But before this bike trip, I hated fixing flat bike tires. Just hated it. I take my bike to work every day. I take it to the gym. I'm basically half bicycle. I'm a bike centaur. But if I got a flat tire, I would rather smoosh my body into the crowded spaces on the metro right into other people's personal space just so I didn't have to take the 20 minutes out of my life to fix that flat tire. Fortunately, I had a partner who did that for me. <laughs> Unfortunately, we broke up. <laughs> it was a really messy breakup. Like, it was not fun. And, you know, at first you're in shock, you're in denial, you, I, can, I can deal with this, this is fine, <sighs> breathing. And then slowly the crazy starts to build up. And you're thinking of ways, you know, that billboard right outside their door, I think that could use a big slogan or I could set his bike on fire. You know, I've, I've never thought about this, I just read about it on the news, people do that. So I thought, I can't, <laughs> I need to get this crazy out. So. I might want to take a spin around the block with my bicycle, but a spin around the block wasn't quite going to do it, so I asked my brother, hey, do you think uh, three weeks will be enough for me to get to Copenhagen by bike? And he said, three weeks. You can get to the North Cup in three weeks. And I turned to him and said, is that a place that exists? And so I, who'd never gone on a long-distance bicycle trip before, someone who had never done anything like this all on her own, and someone who hated fixing flat bike tires, got on her bike on a 3,000-kilometer trip to the North Cup. And of course, when you do that, you should be well-trained. I wasn't. My butt hurt, my knees hurt, my legs hurt. It was pain. I was crying and cursing so much. And, of course, eventually, the inevitable happened. My tire was flat, and I needed to fix it. So I took a deep breath, and I did what I had to do. I flipped the bike upside down. I took out the back tire. 
patched it up, put it back in. Within 30 minutes, it was done. And I was on top of the world. I was so f***ing goddamn proud of myself. I fixed my flat tire. <laughs> because let's be honest, it wasn't about a flat tire. This was about me having forgotten that I could take control of my life. In the months before, while my relationship was crumbling around me, I'd forgotten what it felt like to be the one to solve a problem. I'd forgotten what it felt like to take charge and take matters into my own hands. You know what I was instead? Instead, I was a sobbing puddle of misery on our bathroom floor. I was someone my partner looked at with a mixture of disgust and pity. And I, in seeing that reflection of myself in his eyes, began to think that that's what I was, that I was weak, that I was a burden, and that I was powerless to do anything about this. And I didn't understand why I was being hurt the way I was. But I thought someone would see, someone would do something. I was too tired and too broken to fight. I thought someone would come and see this misery that I was in, and they would change it. They would make sense of it all. They would get me out of here. Someone would come. Help would come. But it never did. No one ever came. So when that flat tire was fixed, I realized that I still had it in me. I could take my uh, life into my own hands, and I could fix things. The second time the tire popped, and it did, I was at the north of Sweden. I was, off to, I was about to head off into Finland, and the sun was shining, the birds were chirping, the cars were honking at me to get off the highway, which was where I was fixing my bike, and I did it. I did it in 20 minutes this time. The third time the tire popped, and I'm blaming Schwalbe tires, seriously, it wasn't my fault. I thought to myself, this is the best feeling in the world. Getting to get my repair kit out, get my hands nice and greasy, and fix things, fix my own problems, take life into my own hands. Three weeks after leaving Berlin, I reached the Nord Cup. It's marked by a steel black globe that sits out on a cliff that reaches out into the Arctic Atlantic. I was so happy. I was deliriously happy. I was crying tears of joy. I'd done it. I'd done it on my own. I fixed my tires. I fixed my problems. And I took my life back into my own hands. And so I carried my bike, which I'd given the name red to by that time, and put it onto the concrete platform, and I cried tears of joy. So here I am now, back in Berlin, and a friend asked me the other day, so what's new? And I said, you know what? I can fix a flat bike tire all on my own, anywhere. And you may think that's a small discovery, but to me, it's the greatest one I ever made. Thank you. That was storyteller Annie Voigt. 
The very last story on this evening's program comes from Emma Ann Harris. It's titled Scholarship in the Snow. So I'm standing with my back against the wall. Not just metaphorically, literally. And I've just come out of my PhD defense. It's not gone well. Now in the UK, where I'm from, the PhD defense is taken quite literally. Uh, You have two examiners grill you about your research for hours. And then they tell you whether you've passed or whether you have to make changes. Um, I had a year's worth of changes. I would have to rewrite whole chapters. I would have to redo a lot of research. And I hadn't particularly enjoyed the experience of doing my PhD for various reasons. I was now working full-time in a completely different job. I didn't know where I was going to find the time or the motivation to keep working on this. I also felt an intense amount of shame that I had failed so spectacularly. And I looked up, and between, the, uh, between two buildings, there was a, a gap between two buildings, and the May blossom was falling. And it was falling so thick and so fast that it looked like it was snowing. And in my mind, I was 17 again, and I had the flu. And my God, it was awful. I was dizzy, I felt sick, my throat was raw. I also had a scholarship exam for my first choice of university. The scholarship meant an automatic place and a thousand pounds a year. Originally, this thousand pounds was meant to cover tuition fees, but then the government raised it to 3,000. Nonetheless, this was a thousand pounds and I was from a poor council estate. And my God, I was getting out of that council estate. So I was determined to sit the exam. I set off. It was a January morning in Wales. It was frosty and cold, grey. Went to the, crossed the, the field towards the school bus. And my school was this odd mix of architecture. It had been a grammar school, now it was comprehensive. And there was a stone section from the 1910s, and then these ugly, tall additions from the 1960s, and then these super modern classrooms so new that the paint was still drying. And my exam was in the stone section, right at the top in this tiny little classroom. For reasons I still don't really understand, my headmaster, Mr. R.O.P. Jones, was overseeing the exam personally. So I go in, just me and him, and I sit down and I look behind, That works better when you're not in a microphone. I look behind me uh, through this narrow window, and it's just starting to snow very, very prettily. So I start the exam. And it's going okay. I mean, I'm slightly delirious, but it seems to be going okay. And suddenly there's a Tannoy announcement. There's a loudspeaker announcement, first in Welsh and then in English. Due to heavy snow, the school is being evacuated. When instructed... Please leave and go to the buses. I pause and I look back out the window. 
it's a blizzard. It's just white. So I keep writing. I've got this far. So I my headmaster looks at me, decides that anyone insane enough to continue trying to do an exam in a blizzard is probably not inclined to cheat and leaves the room. So I keep going. Ten minutes later, there's another announcement. Eventually, my headmaster comes back, and I fully expect him to say, look, you have to leave. But no, he just sits down, sips his coffee. I keep writing. So there's another announcement and another announcement, and then I hear the sound of hundreds of school children leaving, very excited school children leaving. I keep writing. And then the buses, I can hear the bus engines start to leave one by one. And then there's silence, which is quite frankly a relief because concentrating up until this point had not been easy between the flu and the leaving and the announcements and whatnot. So my headmaster says, 15 minutes to go. And a couple of moments later, this woman comes in and beckons him out. I don't recognize her, one of the secretaries, I think. I just keep writing. So she comes back in, but he doesn't. And eventually she says, right, time's up. Pass me your paper. She puts it in this brown envelope and seals it closed. So I get up, and uh, she, she leaves. And I think she intended to come back to check that I had someone to pick me up, but she, she never did. She didn't come back. So I'm just left. So I, I, I make my way out of the building, and I'm standing there. And everything's white, and everything's silent. And I'm in this snow-covered playground. It's completely surreal. Made more surreal by the fact that whatever drugs I'd taken to sort of hold off the symptoms have now completely worn off, and I'm just kind of feverish. Uh, so it's kind of like this dream, you know, these weird dreams you have. So I'm in this white landscape. The school is completely deserted. And I should feel panicked because I'm alone and you know, stranded possibly. The buses certainly aren't going to be running anymore. So I call my, I call my stepmom on my snazzy Nokia 3310. And best phone I've ever had. <laughs> and um, at that point, she traded in our car for a white, old white camper van. And it's in this she comes to pick me up. So we drive up through the Ammon Valley, through these a roads, you know, they're okay. And you can see the mountain that kind of looms over the whole whole valley. It's called Munith D, the Black Mountain. It is ironically at this point white. Um, and we do okay, we drive slowly until we turn into the hill above the house. And there's a child playing very gleefully in the snow, and he goes to out in the road. So my stepmom she does the one thing you shouldn't do in a heavy vehicle on a snow and ice covered hill. She slams on the brakes. It's a reflex. There's a child. She doesn't, you know. So the mother grabs the child, pulls him away from the road. But our wheels have locked. And we're sliding down the hill. And my stepmom doesn't swear. But she really wants to, I think, right now. And she's holding the steering wheel. And we're holding the wheels. And I'm. I'm barely there at this point, to be honest, but I'm like, just go down the hill. And we inch forward and hope that we don't skid, hope that the wheels don't lose control. 
slowly, slowly, we make it. We go forward and the wheels hit the bottom. And back on the May day, I push myself off the wall. I get a friend to pick me up. And I go home and I feel very sorry for myself for quite some time. And then I start to write. And I write on weekends. And I write after my work of my office job. And I write during work in my office job. <laughs> the most geeky way of <laughs> breaking the rules in work, working on your PhD. And I keep writing. And it was spring by the time I got the letter when I was 17. I got a full scholarship. I was going to get out of that council estate. And a year and a half after that May day, my internal examiner messages me. We're friends on Facebook by this point. And um, I win people over, slowly. <laughs> and I've got my doctorate degree. But I learned something. I made a discovery when I was 17 on that snowy blizzard day. And that discovery shaped my life and it shaped my research. The only way out is forward. You have to keep going. You just have to hold on and keep going. That was Emma Ann Harris, our final storyteller for this evening's show. These true personal stories were recorded live at The Bear on November 1st at Pfefferberghaus Dreizehn. The Bear was created by Diane Nyman and inspired by The Moth. You heard live music in this evening's show from Eli Chester. Our show's theme is I Need Love, remixed by DJ Spectre. The next live event of The Bear will be on Saturday, December 14th at Centrum Danzigerstrasse 50 in Prenzlauerberg. The theme of the evening is Solstice, stories of the longest night of your life. If you would like to tell a story or attend the next Bear Storytelling evening, go to kcrwberlin.com slash thebear for more information. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>